June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. Do you find yourself aggravated at our hurry-up-and-wait world? Well, Barry Peterson will be along shortly to instruct us all in the virtues of patience. Then it's on to a giant of American journalism who never really existed. He's Charles Foster Kane, the anti-hero of the classic movie Citizen Kane. Although Orson Welles frequently gets all the credit, champions of Welles' lesser-known collaborator are still hoping for him to win his fair share. And for our Ben Mankiewicz, it's all a family affair. Welcome, Mr. Kane. Welcome. To see why Citizen Kane is a classic, you should know the story behind it. These extremely different personalities collided with one another and made something that we still talk about today. It's in a new film with my grandfather at the center. Mank, it's Orson Welles. Later on Sunday morning. Of course it is. Stevie Nicks is a longtime member of the rock band Fleetwood Mac, not to mention a solo artist as well. This morning, she'll be talking with Tracy Smith for the record. So I'm back. After five decades in the music industry, Stevie Nicks is suddenly as hot as ever with a new song, a new feature film, and a whole new following. Why do you think you are here? Because I just won't go away. (laughs) (laughs) The incomparable Stevie Nicks, coming up on Sunday morning. Talk about a bang-up job. Lee Cowan has witnessed an attempt to break the unlikeliest of world records. The bigger the better doesn't apply to all things, but it certainly does to fireworks. The record for the world's largest aerial firework, though, can be a very colorful experience. 2,000 hours for about 20 seconds of pleasure. That's if it goes off. That's if it goes off. Yeah. I thought you said when. When it goes when off. When it goes off. Yeah. Three, two, one, go. Will it work? 
ahead on Sunday morning. Morocco relives the bitterly contested presidential election of 1876. Seth Doan and Elizabeth Palmer tell us why the whole world is watching this year's election. Just in time for Halloween, Luke Burbank visits a drive through haunted house, plus politics with John Dickerson and more. On this Sunday morning, the 25th of October, 2020. And we'll be back after this. Hurry up and wait. Watchwords for our exasperating times. But there's another phrase to remember. Patience is a virtue. As Barry Peterson learned when he set out to report our cover story in those pre-pandemic days of not so very long ago. You've seen the pictures. Wherever you vote this year, you know there's a good chance you need to be ready to wait and wait and wait. We've been here eight hours and 30 minutes. At the polls, at the grocery store, in traffic, we Americans are weary of waiting. But consider this. Even before the pandemic, we spent an estimated two years of our lives waiting in lines. And with COVID cases on the rise again, it's fair to say many of us just can't wait for things to get back to normal. But it turns out impatience may be almost as dangerous as the virus itself. People are just so anxious to return to what used to be. It seems a dangerous trend. You know, there was an interesting study where they gave people the choice to sit alone and get bored or give themselves painful electric shock. And about 70% men chose to give themselves painful electric shocks versus sit alone and get bored. So people don't like to get bored. People do not like to be controlled. People do not like uncertainty. But that's only the half of it. The other half is our genes. Dr. Ahmed Sood founded a department that researches impatience at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Before the pandemic, he told us why. We're designed to be impatient. So when little babies are born, they don't just wait for you to clean their diapers. You know, they cry. And when was the last time you really preferred a slow elevator or <laughs> you loved, you know, slow Internet connection? It turns out how we handle ourselves in these uncertain times comes at a price. The opposite of patience is not impatience. The opposite of patience is anxious, Mm -hmm. ill, injured, addicted, lonely, and, and dead. It literally can kill you. It can. An episode of explosive anger, stress, or impatience can increase your risk of heart attack and sudden death by two to eight fold for the next few hours. Wow. Yeah. If that's not alarming enough, Dr. Sood says impatience can even have a long-term effect on your DNA. If we were to take your blood sample and uh, measure your telomeres, which are at the end of chromosomes, the shorter they are, the smaller they are, the older you are. And people who are impatient have shorter telomeres. So they're actually making themselves older by being impatient. Yeah, some people say the only thing that gets faster with impatience is aging. And impatience has an evil twin brother, stress. Try to stay as relaxed as possible. I took the Mayo Clinic stress test designed to simulate the stress of everyday life. Go ahead and start gripping. You must do things like keep squeezing a grip. Squeeze a little more. Or endure three minutes keeping a hand in ice-cubed freezing water. Really and truly, that already hurts. 30 seconds left. The results, dramatically higher blood pressure and changes to the heartbeat. So what was the reaction to the ice water test? The test was overseen by Dr. Michael Joyner. Big rise in blood pressure. What I reminded of is like being on the phone, trying to get customer service, where you feel like you're endlessly (laughs) waiting. Can that have the same effect on your body? Absolutely. People have a very... A hard time understanding what they do and don't have control over. 
It can feel like the world is out of control these days, but we do have control over ourselves. If you choose to be patient, you're helping yourself, you're living longer and happier, and you're helping your loved ones. Being patient is a choice. Dr. Sood says the other word that will help us through the pandemic is resilience, and that will fire up your body. You do not have any bullets, you do not have any swords, you can't fist fight with this virus. You can empower your billions of immune cells to fight with this virus, and when you're resilient, your immune cells are stronger in waging that war. And boosting your resilience can be a walk in the park, literally. There are so many elements of nature that we respond to as humans. Florence Williams traveled the world, writing about how nature can help us master impatience and make us healthier. The science is pretty clear on this. Even after just 15 minutes of walking in a green space or a park, our blood pressure drops a little bit, our heart rate slows down, and even our stress hormones, like cortisol, lower. It's got to be all good, right? It boosts our moods very dramatically. No surprise, the frustration of lockdowns quickly gave way to people flooding the outdoors when they could and feeling better for it. And some take it to a new level of calm, doing something the Japanese invented called forest bathing, basically hiking in slow motion. The benefit of slowing down is that your life isn't passing you by. Jane West is a psychologist who leads forest bathing sessions in the Colorado Rockies. I think being in a forest surrounded by green and wonderful smells allows us to be lost in this moment, as if nothing else exists. And I know that's so hard to find these days, but it is doable, it's reachable, and I do this because it gives me those moments. The pandemic won't end anytime soon, but Dr. Sood insists we can turn our impatience to good use if we just want to. Is there an opportunity to make ourselves better by training ourselves about patience? Absolutely. There is tremendous opportunity uh, during this pandemic to uh, rise uh, because of it. That ability to rise above may be sorely tested, since, as we've heard, ballot counting could go on for days after November 3rd. For Americans, for America, what might be the ultimate test? Look, up in the sky, a fireworks display that's truly a bang-up job. Here's Lee Cowan. We know it's not customary to think about fireworks this close to Halloween, but with trick-or-treating a little scary this year, who couldn't use a little magic in the sky? Winter fireworks above the ski slopes of Steamboat Springs, Colorado. And among them was a monster readying to jump out of nowhere. This was February 2019, the day the biggest aerial fireworks shell in the world was gingerly being loaded for launch. This is certainly one of the more unique record attempts I've ever done. Michael Emprick works for Guinness World Records. Yeah, we're 14, seven and a half. He was sent here to certify the would-be achievement. What's the correct term, a launch? Yeah, yeah. I was convinced it was going to be successful. Were you? 100%. In the dark and the chill of that night. We're ready. The man behind the record attempt, Steamboat native Tim Borden, was anxious. He and his team had spent six years dreaming of this moment. And now it all came down to the push of a button. Three, two, one. The world's biggest aerial firework was a fiery fail. Oh, I'm so sorry. Because it's very easy to go out and say, hey, great job, you're new Guinness World Records title holders. The hard part is how do you deliver the news that, oh, that went really poorly. C'est la vie. This is an official Guinness World Records shirt. Dressed in their crisp Guinness uniforms, Emprick and his colleague, Christina Conlon, admit that calling a record a world record takes some record-setting nerves. Does it ever get ugly? We've 
definitely seen people who were not too excited that the record wasn't broken. I've had some stuff tossed in my direction. Um, Water bottles. Some water bottles. It's a very easy thing to throw. Yeah. I did these two here, largest uh, canned food mosaic. Uh, That was earlier this year. Even though their job is to judge, don't call them that. Guinness prefers the word adjudicator. It's very British. (laughs) Irish, actually. Guinness World Records used to be linked to the famous Dublin Brewery. Yep, Guinness first published a book of achievements in 1955 as a way to solve pub disputes. Since then, that book, the 2021 version came out earlier this month, has sold over 143 million copies. And this too tall as toilet roll pyramid. I love that. (laughs) Who didn't as a kid flip through it to peer at the world's tallest living man or the world's shortest living woman, the world's heaviest squash or the most tennis balls stuffed in a dog's mouth. It's six, by the way. Things that you would consider weird, we consider very normal. So (laughs) like like the woman with the longest fingernails. I know her. Her name is Ayana. She lives in Houston. She's She's lovely. so nice. She does everything except dishes in the sink. (laughs) That's very normal to me. (laughs) How long are her fingernails? um, 32 feet in total. Feet? Yes. Whoa. Yeah. I had let them grow maybe three inches, and the next thing I know, they were here. Most records do leave you in some state of awe. I mean, how do you get 51 people crammed into a VW bus? That would be a social distancing nightmare these days. This week's challenge, how many bottle flips can you do in 30 seconds? But Guinness, mindful of the pandemic, set up weekly at-home challenges. This week's challenge... How many keep-ups can you do with a toilet roll in 30 seconds? Almost anything you can do alone is fair game. What else are you going to do? Guinness usually gets about a thousand applications every single week to break a record. Are you ready to get seated? You ready to tuba? (laughs) One of the most common is the mass participation record. Like this attempt back in 2018 for the world's largest tuba ensemble organized by the Kansas City Symphony. Okie dokie. The record to beat was 502 tubas all playing in unison. That is apparently a thing. Because it was December, they chose, what else, Silent Night. When they actually started playing, it was beautiful. It... I'm not even kidding. Christina, with the help of witnesses, counted 835 tubas, shattering the coveted tuba ensemble record. Oh, it's good. Victory is always sweet. Sometimes it is literally sweet. The Watkins Company in Winona, Wisconsin, wanted to honor its 150th anniversary two years ago by baking the most layers into a layer cake. But the higher it got, the more the layers started to lean. Oh, my God, it's tilting. You were looking pretty nervous as that thing started to... I was so nervous. The cake had to stand upright, unassisted, for 60 seconds to get the title. In the end... Three, two, one, okay. The only place the cake landed was in the record book. 260 layers. The Watkins Company has broken the Guinness World Records title for greatest number of layers in a layer cake. When you see someone just blow your mind with the fact that they are refusing to give up and they find a way to make it happen, I think it really teaches you to not doubt people. Which brings us back to Tim Borden. You know, I'm not the kind of guy who wants to give up. I don't think anybody does. He and his team came back this year to try for the biggest aerial firework record yet again. One thing I can guarantee, we're going to have a heck of an explosion at the bottom of that mortar. (laughs) I can guarantee that. As the regular fireworks ended, everyone took their places, including Christine. Ready to go. (laughs) And just like the year before, the moment came. You ready? In the pitch dark. Three, two, one, go. But it wasn't dark for long. Oh, woo! Whoa! 
Hey, how about that, guys? At 2,797 pounds, the only thing brighter than the fireworks glow was Tim Borden's smile when he and his team were handed the world record. Congratulations, gentlemen. You are officially I just feel like this job has kind of inspired me in a way that I didn't expect that the job would. And to have that opportunity to go and say, you know what? You did a really good job. That's a great feeling. Actor and director Orson Welles is widely acclaimed as the creator of the 1941 film classic Citizen Kane. But another, less celebrated man deserves his due as well. His cause is a family affair for our man in Hollywood, Ben Mankiewicz. It is arguably the most famous word ever spoken on film. And it comes from what many consider the greatest movie ever made. Citizen Kane. Orson Welles' 1941 masterpiece on the rise and fall of Charles Foster Kane. I made no campaign promises. A ruthless capitalist, mostly based on newspaper tycoon William Randolph Hearst. I felt like a kid in front of a candy store. Well, tonight, six years later, I got my candy. All of it. <laughs> Welcome, gentlemen, to the Inquirer. With its deep focus camera work, and bold lighting techniques that use shadows to direct the audience's attention, Citizen Kane is a cinematic landmark. So it's only fitting that the story behind it is equally compelling. And that's the story director David Fincher tells in his new Netflix film. I spoke to Fincher on Stage 19 at Paramount Studios. It's where Wells made Citizen Kane 80 years ago. When you look at a movie that is cohesive as Kane was. From the authorship standpoint, it fires on all cylinders. Fincher's film is called Mank. Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. 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 Oscar winner Gary Oldman stars as Herman Mankowitz, who Wells hired to write the screenplay for Kane. Mank? It's Orson Welles. Of course it is. Full disclosure, Herman Mankiewicz was my grandfather. For all that I know and all that my father knew about his dad, you captured Herman completely authentically. Well, that's a great thing to hear. Fincher's resume includes Fight Club. Did you kill your wife, Nick? Gone Girl. This idea is potentially worth millions of dollars. Million! And The Social Network. So a black and white period piece about someone most people have never heard of seems a curious choice. What was the pull of late 30s, early 40s Hollywood? It wasn't. It was the character. It was, it was, it was the guy. It was the notion of someone struggling with great ability and personal troubles and, you know, his pushing a rock up a hill in gravel. My grandfather was definitely a character. Everybody called him Mank. Talented and tormented, he was the smartest and wittiest guy in the room, also the drunkest. His career was at a low point when he met Orson Welles, who was soaring. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's. Three years before Kane, Welles' radio broadcast of War of the Worlds scared thousands into believing Martians had invaded New Jersey. Wells was a genius, and he knew it. So did Hollywood. At just 24, Wells was given carte blanche to make any movie he wanted. So he went to my grandfather, who had an idea. Take on the original media mogul, William Randolph Hearst. Herman had been to parties thrown by Hearst, bearing witness to the wild excesses. What's interesting to me is the notion of a guy who had overheard a lot of things and had a really specific understanding of the world that he was 
pulling the curtain back from. If I may be so bold, why Hurst? Are you going to say anything? You pick a fight with Willie, you are finished. In Citizen Kane, Herman Mankiewicz revealed how men like Hurst used their power to manipulate people and crush dissent. Really, Charles? People will think... What I tell them to think. Fincher recreated Hearst Castle by blending vintage photographs with digital effects. There's a great shot of Gary Oldman as my grandfather coming out, looking for Marion. It was a set about as big as, you know, it was like 20 by 20 foot, just the doorway, and then the rest of it's matte paintings. Quite, quite honestly, exactly what the way Wells would have done it. Nobody but nobody makes a monkey out of William Randolph that's a scene with Mank and Marion Davies, a movie star who everybody knew was Hearst's mistress. She's played by Amanda Seyfried. It's amazing. It really reconnects me to this story. We spoke to her outside the Manhattan mansion Hearst bought for Davies. I think the perception was that she was just not that bright, a, a comedian, really a very um, flighty young woman. She was actually so much smarter than people gave her credit for. When one is dancing in a Broadway hit, one gets so tired of dancing. You didn't get so tired when you danced over me all night. That's because I dance on my toes now. I was dancing on a heel then. Much more talented, very self-assured. She's someone I would have gone along with really well. For Amanda Seyfried, who has starred in Mean Girls and Mamma Mia, a black-and-white film set during Hollywood's golden age was a welcome change of pace. It's a really great way to just go back in time and experience an era that we weren't a part of. The debate over who wrote Citizen Kane has been raging for decades. My grandfather wrote a long first draft. Wells condensed it. They shared the film's only Academy Award, the Oscar for Best Screenplay. But it's not the credit that matters to Fincher. It's the collaboration. I was interested in watching how these extremely different personalities collided with one another for uh, one moment in time and made something that we still talk about today. Mank. Mr. Mankowitz. While my link to Fincher's film is obvious there is also another family connection. You're watching the titles of this movie, a screenplay by, what's it say? Jack Fincher. Jack Fincher was David Fincher's father. He was a journalist most of his life, which is why his assessment of the only good movies um, are written by and or about journalists. <laughs> um, I was sort of indoctrinated with that from a very early age. David Fincher is not given to sentimentality but it was clearly special for him to finish what his dad started 25 years ago. And wish he could have seen it get made before, you know, nine months of chemo, um, but it didn't happen. Jack Fincher died in 2003. And we're left with this, and it is nice to come full circle. There's a circle completed for me, too. I love seeing my grandfather's name on Citizen Kane, but I never knew him. He died in 1953 long before I was born. You're not going to like this, Orson. But through Fincher and Gary Oldman, I want credit. I feel like I'm getting a little taste of the real Herman Mankiewicz. My father would have been very, very pleased to see that you created his dad as someone that just about everybody would have wanted to be around. Yeah, you know. yeah. He's a mensch. Nine days to go before America decides on a choice for president. An election that we certainly hope goes far more smoothly than the disputed election of 1876. Mo Rocca takes us back. 1876 was a banner year for America, the 100th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. A nationwide celebration with a full fifth of the country's population descending on Philadelphia for the Centennial Exposition. But beneath the revelry, there was a deep sense of unease. 
This was the depths of a pretty serious economic depression. There was widespread unemployment. There were fairly violent labor disputes going on in various parts of the country. And, says Columbia University history professor Eric Foner, the country was still feeling the aftershocks of the Civil War, which had ended only 11 years before. There was still violence in the South, which had existed since the Civil War because of white supremacists' opposition to the giving of citizenship rights to the former slaves. So it was not a tranquil year, that's for sure. 1876 was also a presidential election year. And all of these issues, plus the rampant corruption in the administration of outgoing President Ulysses S. Grant, would factor into the contest. The Republicans ran Ohio Governor Rutherford B. Hayes. Was he charismatic? I wouldn't say so. Dustin McLaughlin is the historian at the Rutherford B. Hayes Presidential Center in Fremont, Ohio. He really exemplified that American tradition of the office seeks you, you don't seek it. We have kind of the trifecta over here. We have General Grant, General Sherman, General Sheridan. All great Union generals. Yes, and all from Ohio as well. Hayes's service as a general during the Civil War, says the center's executive director, Christy Weininger, was central to his identity. He saw firsthand the passions that were behind the sectionalism that caused the Civil War. So I think that was always in the back of his mind, is how do we make this country feel united again? Meanwhile, the Democrats were hungry to reclaim the White House, which they hadn't won in 20 years. Their candidate, New York Governor Samuel Tilden, a bachelor lawyer, had made his name fighting big city corruption. Tilden and Hendricks, with Tilden and Hendricks, hurrah for Tilden and Hendricks. The man was um, a bit lethargic, and quite frankly, a lot of people thought he was dull. Dull but dedicated. His home sat across from New York City's Gramercy Park and is today the National Arts Club, overseen by Robert Yoner. I have to tell you, this house is kind of nicer than the White House. This house is a great Tilden legacy. While both had beautiful homes, neither candidate, says Eric Foner, was exactly Mount Rushmore material. There's another way of putting it. Both of them were basically mediocrities, politically. Still, the turnout that November 7th remains the highest ever for a presidential election. The turnout was 82% of eligible voters. That's extraordinary. You had two political parties competing throughout the nation with people very loyal to them. On election night, Tilden was ahead in the popular vote by 260,000 votes. Hayes actually goes to bed believing Tilden had won, and he actually has interviews with reporters saying, I have lost. The Republican Party has to step in and tell him to stop saying that. That's because Republican officials still saw a narrow path to victory for Hayes. If Hayes could carry the three southern states where the results were not yet clear, Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina, he would win by one electoral vote. And they just issued a statement. Hayes has carried those states and is elected. And in a certain sense, it's almost like the 2000 election where Bush made an early claim of victory, even though it was so divided, and Gore never quite contested it properly. And just as in the year 2000, America in 1876 woke up the morning after the election not knowing who had won. Inauguration back then was in early March, which meant the country had four months to figure out who would be its 19th president. This election was flawed from top to bottom. Massive voter fraud, says Foner, only added to the confusion. There was violence throughout the South against African-American voters to try to make it impossible for them to vote. Black men, almost all of whom were Republican back then, had only recently won the right to vote and Southern Democrats were actively suppressing that vote. If there had been a fair election in the South, there's no question Hayes would have won by a large margin. But as the weeks dragged on, 
neither side was willing to concede. How tense did it get? There were Democratic newspapers with headlines, March to Washington to install Tilden as president. There were Republicans saying, we're on the verge of another civil war. Tilden or blood. This idea that if Tilden's not counted in, we might have another war, you know, to fight here. Was there a fear that there could be dueling presidencies? Yes. There were key Democrats who asked Tilden to take the oath of office anyway. He refused to do so. And there were a lot of people who said, particularly businessmen and others, who said, we don't even care who's elected, but get this settled. But Congress was divided, and the Constitution offered no clear direction for resolving the impasse. So in January of 1877, a 15-member electoral commission was formed. The eight Republicans and seven Democrats would determine which candidate won the states in dispute. By some coincidence, all the electoral votes are allocated to Hayes by a vote of eight to seven in each case. That's right. The commission voted along party lines. But it's not over yet. It's not over yet. The Tilden camp cried foul. With inauguration just days away and the nation on edge, representatives for both candidates met in Washington for secret negotiations. Ironically, they took place at Warmly House, a major hotel which is owned by a black man, Warmly, probably the most well-to-do African-American in the city of Washington at that time. Ironic, because the agreement forged there known as the Compromise of 1877, would have long-lasting repercussions for black Americans in the South. The Democrats will not stop the inauguration of Hayes. They will accept Hayes as president. Hayes will end the remaining Reconstruction. In other words, the Republicans get the White House. The Democrats effectively regain control of the American South. No more federal protection of the rights of recently freed African Americans. The Democrats promise they will respect the basic rights of the former slaves, which they do not do. Rutherford B. Hayes was certified as president on March 2, 1877. Samuel Tilden accepted the decision. Three days later, Hayes was inaugurated in a peaceful transfer of power. I think if either Hayes or Tilden had been of the personality that was very aggressive, that was very intense, really wanted this presidency for very selfish reasons, I think the whole tenor would have changed. Today, says Christy Weininger, President Hayes is remembered less for what he did during his single term in office than for the election that threatened once again to tear apart the country. Are visitors bringing up the election of 1876 more? They're very interested in how divisive the country was then. And somehow knowing that we've been there before and survived, I think, gives some comfort and some hope to people. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases. The time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that can enthrall you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped, like Amy Tintera's Listen for the Lie. With exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors, captivating sound design, and dynamic performances, Audible brings these stories to life like never before. And as a member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power the collaboration needed for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything, from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or 2 million, Atlassian software is built to help keep you connected and moving together as one.
dragging my heart around is just one of the hits that puts Stevie Nicks on the musical map. Both as a member of Fleetwood Mac and as a solo artist, she's built a devoted following over the years. And she's talking to Tracy Smith for the record. Singer, songwriter, superstar Stevie Nicks is getting a little restless these days. So I'm back to the underground. The pandemic has put performances like this on hold, so she's waiting to take the stage again. And as she told us last week, the waiting is, well, the hardest part. It seems like for so many creative people, this is a very creative time, but also time is slipping away. Time is being stolen from all of us. Absolutely. Especially if you're 72 years old. Does that weigh on you? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. When you're really working, you really stay young. You stay young because you have to. But when you're just sitting around in your house, I think that old man time starts to get a hold of you. Still, it seems that old man time has always been kind to Stevie Nicks. It's a trip. You can see it in her just-released feature film, 24 Karat Gold, The Concert, where she looks and sounds pretty much the same as she always did. Come with me. The movie will stream soon, but for the moment it's being shown in socially distanced theaters. It's as close to a really big rock and roll concert in a big venue as you're going to (laughs) get. Please, God, on this day. And it's not the only way Stevie's making herself heard these days. She decided to release her first new song in six years, Show Them the Way, as a call for action on the eve of the election. Show them the way. Now there you go again, you say you want your free. And now, some of her classic tunes are suddenly climbing the charts again, thanks to a cranberry juice-loving Idaho skateboarder who posted this video on TikTok. So, four decades after Dreams and Rumors came out, they're both in the top ten again. I know. The videos inspired quite a few imitators, including bandmate Mick Fleetwood. And last week, this one from the lady herself. This TikTok thing has kind of blown my mind. And, and, I th- and I'm happy about it because it seems to have made so many people happy. You could say making people happy has been Stevie Nicks' calling for the past 50 years or so. And after a career of platinum-selling albums and sold-out concerts, she became the first and so far only woman to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice. 22 men that are in twice for their solo work and being in a big band, and no women. Until you. Until me. So I feel that I definitely broke a big rock and roll glass ceiling. And her backstory is just as legendary. When young Stevie dropped out of college to chase her musical dreams, her parents cut her off financially. So she waited tables and cleaned houses to support herself and her then boyfriend, guitarist Lindsey Buckingham. Were there moments when you were cleaning, I mean, you were like cleaning houses, what, scrubbing toilets, mopping floors? Was there a moment when you thought, ooh, I made a mistake. No. No, because I was doing that to support my music pals, Lindsay and some other friends too, you know, that didn't have hardly anything. So I was the one who actually was able to pay the rent and pay the money to keep our toilet running and 
So it's it's like I didn't mind at all because I did not expect my boyfriend Lindsay to get a job because what in the world would he do? So you had to be the one. It was all about me. By the time she became a member of Fleetwood Mac, she almost expected to be underestimated. So she had an arrangement with the group's other female star, Christine McVie. Can you hear me calling? You two stuck together through thick and thin and really had each other's backs. Yeah, we did. And Christine and I, we made a pact at the very beginning that if we were ever in a room of super famous guitar players that didn't treat us with the respect that we thought that we deserved, that we would just stand up and say, this party's over, and we would walk out. And did you have to do that? We never actually did have to do that. So that was a nice surprise. We never had to make a scene. And their friendship endures. Stevie Nicks' romantic relationships seem to be more of a challenge, but they inspired some great music. Have you had a, a love, a great love in your life? Yeah, three. But it's not easy to be Mr. Stevie Nicks. Even if you happen to be Mr. Really Famous rock star guy. So Lindsay falls in that category, the great loves? Oh, absolutely. Well, not exactly. <laughs> Lindsay is, has his own category. Lindsay was my great musical love. That's different. Stevie Nicks' dad once told her she'd never marry because her music would always come first. He was wrong. She married once, briefly. But dad was also right. For Stevie Nicks, music will always be her true love. When I'm 90 years old, I don't want to be laying in my big, gorgeous bedroom and, you know, with music playing and 15 little Chinese-crested dogs and going like, oh... I'm so brokenhearted that I didn't find the one. And then I would have to answer myself and say, yes, but you did find several the ones who you wrote really great songs about. And that's why you're living in this absolutely spectacular house <laughs> with, <laughs> with everything that you want and anything that you could possibly want to buy. And it's like, so maybe this is just all the way your dad saw it when he said, Stevie will never get married and the way it's supposed to be. And the way it's supposed to be. Cliché though it may sound, the whole world really is watching America decide on our next president. We'll be taking a closer look as Election Day draws closer, and we start off with Seth Doan and Elizabeth Palmer watching The Watchers in Europe and Russia. We begin with Seth Doan. Here in Europe, they're watching this election closely. And while two names are at the top of the ticket, one seems to get the most attention, President Trump. He's really taken the world by a storm. In a good way or a bad way? I, I, well, in an American way. The chummy Europe-U.S. relationship has strained recently. The longtime allies parting ways over climate change and spatting over trade, with new U.S. tariffs on products ranging from French-made airplanes to Italian Parmesan cheese. Trump has also criticized NATO partners for not paying their fair share. First of all, he has a point. I don't think any future American president can let up on that and just say that's okay. The United Kingdom's former ambassador to the U.S., Sir Kim Derrick, knows both worlds well. People who uh, 
who are used to a more traditional American form of diplomacy, find this extraordinarily disruptive and disconcerting, and they really don't like it. Derek made headlines in 2019 after a confidential government memo leaked in which he referred to the Trump administration as diplomatically clumsy and inept. This type of direct assessment, he argues in his new book, is typical. You also points praised Trump. He had some messages that really connected with people, and his way of delivering those messages was extraordinarily effective. The difference now in 2020, though, is he has a record to run on. Judgment of that record, and in turn America itself, has been harsh in Europe. America's a superpower. It's becoming less so. America doesn't have the same position that it had in terms of its moral authority. A recent Pew Research survey found America's reputation among key European allies at a record low and little confidence in President Trump's handling of world affairs. Do you think the world is moving past America as this superpower? I don't really. American leadership has been very important to Europe and I think to the world. And if it's not there, you just worry that the world will become a more insecure, more dangerous, um, more conflictive place. The U.S. gets low marks here for its management of the coronavirus pandemic. Broader issues like health care and the recent protests over racial inequality. In many parts of Europe, this election is not only being seen as a referendum on President Trump, but on America's leadership role in the world. This is Elizabeth Palmer. The Moscow Marathon brings out thousands of runners in one of the city's great fall rituals. Russians love a good race, so we asked some of them who they're picking in the U.S. presidential. Trump, Trump will visit. I think uh, Trump. So the people have a preference. What about the Kremlin? In 2016, Russia meddled in the U.S. election on the side of Donald Trump. Remember that troll factory in St. Petersburg? It all happened in that nondescript building behind me, which was the headquarters of the Internet Research Agency. In fact, the nerve center of a sustained and covert operation to influence the American election. And the Kremlin got what it thought it wanted. Presidents Putin and Trump went on to develop some personal chemistry, but it wasn't enough to warm relations between the two countries. In fact, just the opposite. Russia got hammered by U.S. sanctions for everything from cyber attacks to corruption. And yet, U.S. intelligence says that Russia is trying to tip the scales in President Trump's favor again. Nikolai Petrov is a Russia expert with the London think tank Chatham House. The Kremlin is very much disappointed by how it was going on under President Trump. But there are no doubts that they would like him to stay in the office. For one thing, Russia believes Republican administrations are less likely to criticize it for human rights abuses and silencing activists. But Vladimir Putin is nothing if not pragmatic. He recently signaled he could work with either candidate and publicly praised them both. One sign that the Kremlin is prepared for a Biden win is this comedy sketch on Russian state TV. It features a digitally manipulated President Trump, unemployed and looking for work. Sometimes I'll say, wow, that's going to be a great story. Ultimately, most Russians want the same thing as their leaders. Better relations with America after November the 3rd, no matter who wins the race. Halloween in a time of COVID is forcing folks to come up with some unique celebrations, as Luke Burbank has discovered. Halloween is just around the corner, but like so many things these days, you've got to get creative <laughs> if you want to have a spooky but safe time. From socially distant candy contraptions... To costumes that keep kids spread out. To maybe the most 2020 thing you'll see. Yeah! The drive through haunted house. All across America, 
From L.A. to New Jersey, people are lining up by the carful to get freaked out. <laughs> I was home one night and I saw my kids and they'd be watching TV and nothing really to do. Johnny Moranti owns a car wash in Copeg, New York. So I said to myself, what can I do to bring a little joy to some younger children? And adults, for that matter. And that's what inspired me to do the uh, Tunnel of Terror. And people have been waiting for hours just to get in. For $25, they get their car washed, and they get menaced by Moranti's employees, dressed as characters sure to haunt any kid's nightscape for years to come. <coughs> Meanwhile, in Portland, Oregon, things were getting messier for folks visiting the Oaks Park Haunted Drive-Thru, where customers can choose from one of five experiences, ranked from zero to five skulls based on how scary they are. Is it um, a challenge to scare people when they're in the relative safety of their car? Yes. <laughs> that has been the, uh, the main concern, is, is how do we make it scary with you know, that barrier? Alex Fulmore is one of the owners of Scaregrounds PDX, who put this attraction together. One thing he didn't expect, people were actually getting too scared when the creepy characters were wandering up to their cars in line for the event. For some reason, the menacing characters, it's just like you're sitting in your car and you see this, you know, you're not quite sure if they're with us. You're not quite <laughs> sure if they've just wandered out of the woods. This feels like a moment in time where if an actual Michael Myers just wandered, you know, down the street, you might be like, oh, that's 2020 for you. <laughs> exactly. You <know? laughs> As night fell, I was ready to drive through one of the experiences. But I wouldn't be doing it alone. I'd brought along my actual nephews, Jack and Abe, for protection. Are you guys scared right now? What is your feeling? Kind of. I don't know what it's going to be like. I've never been to a haunted house. I don't know if there's like a certain level that this one might be of scariness. Yeah. We'd chosen an experience rated four skulls, meaning really scary. And let's see what this one says. This one is condemned. the condemned. Oh, God. Once inside, we were given a Bluetooth speaker so we could hear the terrifying characters. Oh, no. As they tried to claw their way into our vehicle. <laughs> Should I unlock the doors? No. Oh, no. Look at that. He's got the circuit breaker. And then, just like that. Okay. It was over. Scene complete. Please start your vehicle. How was it? That was awesome. Awesome. Yeah? Like, probably the best, like, Halloween thing ever. Even though we had to be in the car, it was still scary. Yeah. We'd survived. And even had a pretty good time being scared out of our wits. With just over a week to go, thoughts on the state of the campaign now from John Dickerson of 60 Minutes. 50 million Americans have already voted. How did they make their decision? An informed electorate is vital to a healthy democracy, Thomas Jefferson believed, but he and the founders left no instructions. Should we choose by studying candidate resumes or their debate performances? Should we think about who we want to have a beer with or who has better policies? You'd think to operate such heavy machinery, there would be some kind of manual. There are no guidelines for making our choice, in part because at first, the presidency was a clubhouse election. Only propertied white men made the choice, and they knew the score. If they strayed, the Electoral College, an even more exclusive club, guaranteed a good pick. Those men of reason, Alexander Hamilton explained, offered moral certainty that the office of president will never fall to the lot of any man who is not endowed with the requisite qualifications. That notion didn't last long. Instead of voters using reason to evaluate candidates for virtue and skill, reason was used to rationalize the candidate that would bring political power. The ninth president, William Henry Harrison, worried that people would just pick the most popular candidate. Men of the fairest characters would sell themselves to the public like auctioneers selling linen. A high-minded concern, except Harrison's Whig party sold him to voters by passing cups of hard cider. It's difficult to use your reason when you're pie-eyed. 
Political parties were in control for a long time, and the parties told voters how to pull the lever. In 1928, Herbert Hoover was nervous that his party had oversold him. My friends have made the American people think me a sort of superman. Should there arise in the land conditions with which the political machinery is unable to cope, I will be the one to suffer. He called that one. Since then, laws that blocked blacks and women from voting have been demolished. The backroom party bosses have been vanquished, too. Candidates took over the task of defining for voters what the job requires. And wouldn't you know, the job requires someone just like them. For some partisans, that's enough. They vote by Team Jersey. For the rest, we not only have to evaluate the candidates, but come up with a scheme for doing so. We're all in the clubhouse now. And this is our glorious burden. Whatever your political persuasion, we're just guessing you've probably had enough of all those mean-spirited campaign commercials, which is why this one stood out to us, so we decided to share. I'm Chris Peterson. And I'm Spencer Cox. We are currently in the final days of campaigning against each other to be your next governor. And while I think you should vote for me... Yeah, but really you should vote for me. There are some things we both agree on. We can debate issues without degrading each other's character. We can disagree without hating each other. And win or lose in Utah, we work together. So let's show the country that there's a better way. My name's Chris Peterson. And I'm Spencer Cox. And we We approve approve this message. Thank you, Chris Peterson. Thank you, Spencer Cox. You're both winners in our book. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning. Hey, everybody, John Stewart here. I am here to tell you about my new podcast, The Weekly Show, coming out every Thursday. We're going to be talking about the uh, election, earnings calls. What are they talking about on these earnings calls? We're going to be talking about ingredient to bread ratio on sandwiches. I know you have a lot of options as far as podcasts go, but how many of them come out on Thursday? Listen to The Weekly Show with Jon Stewart wherever you get your podcasts.